0: to Strictly Business, the podcast in which we speak with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. Roku is on a roll. Its stock price grew about 150% in 2020, and the streaming platform shows no signs of cooling down this year thanks to some interesting deals getting done in recent months, from finally securing the HBO Max app to its licensing of the Quibi content catalog. Yes, you heard that right, Quibi. So. Who better to talk to than the man who got those deals done at roku it's senior vp of the platform business scott rosenberg i got to speak with scott on january 14th at the variety entertainment summit a ces partner program we'll have this special interview coming up in just a moment Welcome back to the Strictly Business Podcast, where I'm joined today by Scott Rosenberg, Senior VP of the Platform Business at Roku. Scott, I just want to start with some data points from our Variety Intelligence platform that show just how incredible the growth story at Roku has been. Clearly, you guys have been on the rise in a number of key metrics for years now, but when you look at the last 12 months, it's especially impressive. You've added over 10 million subscribers over the last four quarters, over six billion hours of streaming hours over the same period. No wonder you're the leader in the connected TV space as you go up against some much bigger competitors. And look, I've got my theories as to how things are going so well for you, but I want to hear it from you. What are you guys getting right in 2020 that's, it seems like you're hitting all cylinders.
4: Yeah. Thanks for the, uh, for the setup, Andy, I appreciate it. And for having us on it, it 2020 was an amazing year for Roku. As you said, we uh, we cleared 50 million active accounts which is our proxy for households. We had uh, 55% growth in streaming hours. That's our measure of user engagement. We're the number one TV in the US, 38% of all smart TVs sold in the US were powered by the Roku operating system, or number one in Canada as well. You know, I'd attribute this to really two factors. One is this is a secular transition. All television is going to be streamed, everybody's going to leave the tra- traditional pay TV package. That was a trend that was well underway before the pandemic. But the pandemic really accelerated the transition. And that really owes to the drying up of Live sports and news. So the pay TV package just wasn't as attractive to the consumers who were still in the pay TV package. And it really created the incentive for consumers to cut the cord. About a third of US households have now cut the cord among our universe. 90, 92% of Roku consumers who've cut the cords have said that they're very satisfied and they're not going back. So the pandemic really. Pulled forward, accelerated a bunch of of change that was already well underway, and Roku's done well because of our product offerings. Because we we keep the user experience simple and intuitive. It's a great content lineup, and the uh, the value equation's really there. You know, you can get into a Roku streaming stick for twenty nine bucks, or you can get an incredible sixty five inch television with Roku built in.
0: But as you referenced, clearly the pandemic uh, had its impact with this shelter-at-home audience that was just sort of tailor-made for Roku. You've also got a lot of streaming services coming online in 2020. Uh, I I assume you saw a lot of sampling, and and Roku was right there for a lot of these new players.
4: Yeah, 2020 was a great year for consumers. You know, you had had Disney Plus launch in, in late 2019, you had Peacock, you had HBO Max launch just uh, last week. We had Discovery Plus launch. All of these services are distinct; they're unique, but they all buoy the proposition for consumers to cut the cord and move to streaming. And uh, you know that's that's also a benefit that accrues to a platform like Roku's as the experience gets richer, as the content gets richer. Consumers move more of their TV time to our. Uh, to our devices. And that, that's ultimately our, our goal. Our strategy is to capture more households, but also more time in our households.
0: You seem pretty sure, though, about, you know, mass cord cutting. And I got to say, I wonder, uh, during the pandemic, we actually saw some of those numbers slow a bit as live TV came online. I mean, do you really think it's, it's going to be quite the free fall that some make it out to be?
4: I do, and I think you. uh, Well, it depends, I guess, on your definition of free fall. I would call double digit ratings declines year over year for many years in a row, free fall. Um, You know, we did see uh, when sports came back, we saw some some users who had switched to streaming go back, but they actually didn't restore 100% of their linear viewership when sports came back. So you have dynamics like that where consumers just don't return back to where they were. I think in another area, in uh, theatrical releases, you've got folks like Warner uh, experimenting during the pandemic by bringing 17 titles to HBO Max. You've got Disney doing uh, Mulan and a bunch of other titles. Uh, you know, I think the question will be coming out of the pandemic is does, does day and date movie experiences do that does that last after the pandemic? Do consumers get used to it and demand it and, and really enjoy it as an experience? Do studios and distributors get comfortable with it as a as a new distribution model? We'll see, but but consumers are the winners here, and I think they set up a, a precedent and a pressure to uh, to support some of these new consumption models.
0: Well, speaking of pressure. Uh, You know, I got to wonder whether Roku is somewhat like Netflix, uh, which also obviously had a gangbusters 2020, but kind of already warned the street like, hey, don't expect 2021 to be like this. Do you guys feel 21 is going to be a tough act to follow simply because 20 was such a unique set of circumstances?
4: Well, you know, I won't comment on the future too much, except to say that I, I still think that there's an enormous amount of television consumption even in a more mature market like the States that still has to move to streaming. Uh, you look at, um, the breadth of content that's available, but still coming to streaming. Then you look abroad, you look internationally, uh, where streaming is not, not, not as far along as the States are. I think that, uh, OTT streaming is still a young market with lots of uh, long-term potential growth.
0: Let's talk a bit about that long-term potential. I mean, how do you see the 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 TV advertising market changing in in the next five years? Uh, given connected TV seemed to had a real breakthrough in twenty twenty.
4: Well, I do think that television marketers are coming to grips with the fact that they they just can't reach all TV households anymore. When a third of US households have cut the cord, a traditional pay TV investment program by an ad agency isn't going to reach a third of of TV households. So that's the that's the first big step I think for for TV marketers as they think about streaming is just to keep reaching TV viewers while they're on the new the new experience over time though what will play out is just that the that streaming advertising is a better mousetrap than traditional linear television i think you know consumers expect a better ad experience they they aren't going to tolerate ad infinitum 15 16 minutes on the hour of of uh untargeted ads so so there's that consumer pressure uh, but for for marketers who've grown to expect their media to to get smarter, to be more targetable, to be more measurable, to be able to optimize to a site visit or a product purchase, streaming also offers those capabilities. And so I think it's it's both a push and a pull that's going to ultimately cause yet more budgets to move out of traditional television into streaming.
0: You know, I think what people really began to understand about your business in 2020 was the the so-called, you know, date you brought to the dance uh, was the device business and getting into TV operating systems. But that was really just kind of a prelude to uh, a focus on ad monetization. And I think that's really what's driven the growth here, Um but is this market mature enough yet? I mean, you're obviously very bullish on it, but there, there, at least in 2020, it feels like there's still a ways to go for connected TV to, to truly be superior.
4: Well, I, I mean, I, I'm biased, of course. I think from a consumer experience perspective, it's already superior. Is it yet commanding the kind of dollars and investment commensurate with the consumer viewership? That's already taking place. The answer to that is not yet, and I think we'll see that start to continue to play out over time. Uh, you know, Roku last twelve months had a had a an ARPU a revenue per user of about twenty seven dollars, which has been growing healthily along with strong consumer growth. But that twenty seven dollars is still a very modest portion of what. A U.S. TV household is worth in terms of what they pay for services and the, the value of the advertising that they experience. So I think that shows you just how how young uh, the streaming market is and how significant the uh, the upside potential uh, is that's out there. In terms of your your reference to our business model, our goal has always been to be in a in a devices business. That's the yin part of our business, but it's not a particularly profitable part of the business. It's a user acquisition vehicle. Uh, the, the yang here is the services, the economics that we derive after you take your Roku home and set it up. And as you point out, that's been heavily about advertising. Uh, and that's that's there are a couple of reasons for that. One is advertising funds about one of every two dollars that funds the overall TV ecosystem today. The other, the other dollar coming from what consumers pay their pay TV provider. Um, but um, it it's also because Roku as a platform has a unique value add for marketers who are looking to move their, their dollars. We have a direct relationship with our consumers. We have uh, lots of bespoke ad experiences that we can create for brands. It puts us in a unique position to help brands migrate out of traditional television. Got it.
0: Um, you mentioned HBO Max earlier, which was probably a big growth driver in in the last month of the year, with all those movies first run thirty day windows. But it took months and months for HBO Max to finally show up on Roku after pretty protracted negotiations. Is it fair to say that you finally gave HBO Max access to Roku subs because? Warner basically leveraged that movie move, and you couldn't have possibly afford to not have them on the platform.
4: Well, I won't comment in in too much detail in those negotiations. Uh, we're, we're very glad to have gotten a deal done, as I think they are as well. Uh, both parties had a lot to offer. Roku, with 50 million active accounts, is a pretty important platform partner for any service in streaming. Uh, but as you point out, HBO Max is a great service. Great movies coming. I watched Wonder Woman on the on the 24th or 25th with my two teenage kids. You know, these deals sometimes take longer, but ultimately, our goal is to create value for the partners. And uh, the, these these distribution partnerships are different from a traditional cable TV programmer carriage dispute in that those deals, those disputes are almost always about a fixed and declining pie, where the parties are really trying to preserve economics in a declining ecosystem. OTT is totally different. It's it's up and to the right. And so the, the trick in these deals is to create a, a win-win relationship with a with a partner like Warner Media where when they win Roku wins and of course the consumer wins by getting the service live. We we did it uh with them we got Discovery Plus live last week we got Peacock live we're really excited about these services. But
0: you make that comparison that I think a lot of people were making uh to sort of the cable business and these blackout battles that are all too common and you know, is what does Hollywood need to know about Roku's negotiation stance? Is this going to be, are we going to see a lot more of this or has Hollywood, the content companies come around to better understanding where Roku is after a a few really high publicized tussles?
4: Well, I think by the way, what made those higher profiles, just the industry hadn't seen them before. So it was a, it was a, it's a new thing. I mean, like, I think it's all our jobs to put these services and great content in front of the consumer. And it's it's particularly our job as a distribution platform to serve up to our consumers what they want to watch. So, um, I, you know, I don't have any, uh, any particular messages for our partners. We, uh, we look for, you know, win-win deals where Roku gets a, uh, you know, a, a share of the economics typically in the subscription service, if it's a paid service and a share of economics in, in the advertising side. But our job as Roku is to drive the success of these services. If, if Discovery Plus goes live on Roku and isn't successful, nobody wins. Not Discovery, not Roku, not the consumer. And that's ultimately our DNA as a company is to get into distribution mode, partner deeply with these content providers and make sure that they get a lot of traction.
0: I mean- there are several things you're trying to get, uh, as you make these deals, there's subscription revenue, advertising revenue data. Um, what has been the bigger sticking point as you negotiate these deals? Is there one area where it's like, you know, the content companies just don't seem to understand what Roku needs.
4: Uh, you know, the, what we agree or disagree on really depends on the partner. Um, you know, advertising can be more contentious, um, but I think that's also because this part of the business is somewhat distinct and evolving quickly relative to traditional television. You know, in traditional television, a programmer and an MVPD would split two minutes on the hour to the MVPD, and it's a it's a clean split. OTT streaming ad tech looks a lot more like digital, and so. How the ad tech works is a lot more complicated. Uh, you know, just the plumbing uh, of of how two parties collaborate on things like ad insertion and targeting and measurement is more complicated. So uh, some sometimes that's a rub, but there again, I just think the upside is huge we're really at the precipice of reinventing how TV advertising is going to work for the next couple of decades. And it's, there's huge value creation potential. And we as a platform have great tools that we can provide to our programming partners as they, as they move their ad sales into this more advanced phase of TV advertising.
0: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Scott Rosenberg.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: And we're back with Scott Rosenberg, senior VP of the platform business at Roku. Uh, Another high profile deal that got you guys some attention recently was with Quibi, which, you know, you licensed uh, their content from their now defunct app, we haven't seen this kind of content grab from Roku before, so uh, it begs the question, is this the beginning of a new phase, the, the first of many such deals, or more of an experimental one-off?
4: I would say neither, uh, but you know, just to speak on behalf of Quibi, uh, we thought from the time the service launched that it would do well in connected tv it wasn't part of their launch strategy so it, it 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 became an opportunity of course towards the end of last year and we jumped on it it's 75 plus shows hundreds of hours 10 emmy nominations two two wins for free ray and just uh an awesome who's who of talent um uh in these shows some of it's on the more experimental end some of it is just uh you know you could see it having been produced for the for the 10-foot environment from the first place. So for us, it's an exciting opportunity to put amazing content into the Roku channel, which has grown very, very quickly for Roku. And it's a chance to put this great content in an AVOD, in an ad-supported business model. Of course, Quibi was a subscription-based service. And so we think both the combination of Roku scale and the scale of Roku channel plus the caliber of content Bodes very well for the Quibi library. It's going to do great.
0: Well, but before I ask you more about the Roku channel, I mean, it sounds like you're making the assumption that, you know, with Quibi, it, it, this was good content lo- locked up in a not quite right uh, for the marketplace vehicle whose problems had nothing to do with the content. But doesn't it give you some pause? Isn't it possible that Quibi failed because of the content?
4: Uh, well, you know, look, I suppose, but I, we don't think that's the case. Most of the content actually never saw the light of day. We've got a couple dozen shows that will premiere on Roku. They, you know, they were part of a staged rollout by Quibi. So I really don't think it's about the content. It might have been how, about how it was presented. I mean, of course, launching a service like that in the middle of the pandemic was was un, was an un, unfortunate timing for them. Um, we think the content's going to do great. It's a lot of fun. I mean, the, the shows are are really fun. Really broad spectrum. They'll appeal to younger users. We think they'll resonate very strongly with adults 18 to 34, which is a key demographic for anybody in the ad business. Um, we're, we're excited.
0: And I get that, And but it also sounds like you're stopping short of saying, and this is the beginning of a shopping spree. We are now the big buyer. All the agencies come on in. Which I got to ask, like, so why aren't you guys going on some big spree? Because you could argue what makes the most sense to grow the Roku channel is for you to load up like you're the next Netflix or or Disney
4: Plus. Well, yeah, I won't comment on into the future too much, except to say that the Roku channel has grown very significantly over time. It more than doubled last year. It's a top 10 channel on the platform in terms of reach and hours, 40,000 titles, 150 live linear channels. Uh, We have shown over time our ability to invest more, put uh, a greater breadth and depth of content into the Roku channel. And the acquisition of Quibi is is another step in that process. Um, We will continue to invest. There's still a lot more Viewership and great content to put into the Roku channel, but it's not a it's not a signal of a, a, a giant spending spree, as you said. <laughs>
0: Got it. Um, well, you of course still play host to a lot of the streaming services that are on various kinds of spending sprees, and, and I'm just curious to get your perspective as you know, going back all the way from Netflix to now Discovery Plus and soon Paramount Plus and who knows how many more pluses. Uh, Do you guys have a take in terms of how you see the so-called streaming wars playing out? Because I refuse to believe for one that it's just going to be, oh, sure, there'll be anywhere from 10 to 15 different multi-billion dollar, completely separate streaming services out there. Uh, But maybe you see different. What do you see?
4: Well, I mean, I do agree with what you're hinting at, which is that the average consumer does have some basic capacity in their household to to pay for television. It's also our view that that's almost certainly lower than what it's been in pay TV. Most consumers, it, you know, in addition to a better user experience, are looking for some savings as they cut the cord and move to move to streaming. So there is some capacity. I don't think we know. What it is yet? Is it three services? Is it five? Is it seven? but it's it's probably not ten or twelve services. And so uh, that that suggests that there in any given market, in any given territory, there there can only be a, a certain number of scaled up services. I, I don't think that that precludes niche services. One of the things about streaming is it, like the internet, it allows all shapes and sizes to coexist at the same time. But in terms of the the Disney's, the Netflix's, the the Amazons, and their capacity to invest, I think there'll be a finite number in any given market. More importantly, though, in terms of the Roku Channel and things like our, our Quibi deal, is there is a massive amount of content being produced and available on the shelves from historic productions, and not all of that content's going to fit within the strategy or brand of the the the, the set of big streaming services that land on your home screen. Where does that content live? How does a consumer find it? Where does it get aggregated? That's ultimately, in our view, the opportunity for something like the Roku channel. There is great content out there owned by entities that are not trying to be Disney+, Plus, not trying to be Peacock, uh, but who still want to monetize that content, get it in front of consumers. And that's where a service like the Roku channel can play a value, a valuable role, surfacing that content uh, outside of one of the set of apps that the consumer has downloaded and subscribed to.
0: So you're referencing the the ton of niche services out there, uh, anyone from you know AMC to BritBox to all those. You know, it, it does Roku Channel ultimately perhaps solve the content discovery problem out there where there's just too many, you know, too many ports of call where content uh, resides and Roku Channel sort of represents a consolidation of that?
4: Uh, Yeah, I think so. And in any big service that's going to house a lot of content needs to be an expert at personalization, at machine learning, because once you house in the Roku channel, it's like 40,000 titles, then it's another 50 or 70,000 when you count the premium services like HBO and Showtime others that that have been available. You need to layer on machine learning, recommendations, technology, just to help the consumer get through that content and find something that they wanna watch, to pick up something that they were previously watching. So that's a big focus for us at Roku is using technologies to help consumers discover and get back into a a video viewing session faster.
0: It sounds like 2021 is going to be just as interesting a year for you guys as 2020 was. Uh, I wish you the very best and uh, looking forward to seeing how you do. Thanks for your
4: time, Scott. Yep. Thank you. Nice chatting.
0: This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing.
1: Perfect home sweet home.
3: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for 18 ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's
1: PACASO.com. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners.